This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 7, Episode 32. This is Writing Excuses, Astronomy 101 for writers. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And I'm Eric. We have special guest star Eric James Stone, um, who has recently... You went to Launchpad, didn't you? Yes, I went to the Launchpad workshop. Uh, will you tell us what that is? It's a, Basically, it's a workshop about astronomy for writers. Uh, it's run uh, at the University of Wyoming by Professor Mike Brotherton, who's an astronomy professor there. Okay, excellent. And it's NASA-funded, and, and I just also want to point out that Eric recently run, won a Nebula Award. A nebula is a, an astronomical term. Yes, it yes. is. <laughs> well, which is why I thought it was important to bring Eric that Eric is frequently published in um, Analog, which has some very rigorous science um, required for um, most, of its, most of its science fiction. He's, a, he's the best science fiction dude we know other than Howard. Well, and he's oh, also thanks, he's our Steve Martin, I think. He's our most... He's been on our show more than any other single guest. Yeah. So, so my... Uh, my pitch for this cast to Brandon, I was watching a documentary that uh, was talking about the history of the Earth and the Moon, and it pointed out that uh, in this you know little uh, dual uh, planetary system we've got, because the, you know the Moon is big enough to be a planet all by itself, the Moon was originally quite a bit closer to the Earth, and uh, this affected Earth in some really interesting ways, including megatides that you know swept across the planet um uh you know there was a lot of heat generated uh earth's rotation changed and in in looking at this i thought man uh, it would be so fascinating to have a story set on a planet where this is what's going on uh you know where they've got these massive tides sweeping across the planet and you know how do our colonists deal with that mm. and as i was thinking about that i realized you know there's got to be lots of other uh, astronomy things, um, you know, planetary formation, solar system formation, uh, you know, nebula formation sorts of things that would make for fascinating stories. Um, and I, I do think that the, we don't, as writers, particularly as fantasy writers, know enough about this for when we're generating our world building. And I, I want to also focus this cast on, you know, what kind of astronomical things do we, would it help us to know in our world building? Tides is one of them. Can you, can you tell us anything about how tides work, Eric? Uh, well, uh, first off, the, the tides are generated mostly by the gravity of the moon, mm -hmm. but also to some extent by the gravity of the sun. Okay. The sun's a lot bigger, but it's a lot farther away. Uh, and so its effect on the tides is not as much. But essentially tides are something that you can calculate once you start knowing the effect of the moon and the sun and uh, you know people for you know thousands of years have been figuring out the best times to go fish based on the tides which are based on the position of the moon and the sun okay so how, how else do tides affect world building fishing uh, fishing um, do they have to do with like the jet the the streams in the ocean how they move and things like that oh, absolutely know? they yeah. they shape they they shape continents you know, over on the on the mega scale, uh, the movement of the tides through different kinds of rock. Uh, it, that's there's an awful lot of force involved in that water. Um, and if you look at the shapes of certain coastlines, 
a, a fairly steep coastline, uh, the water only moves you know up and down the coast a little bit. But there are places in in uh, in, in England, I think, um, where the tide coming in you know runs over like two or three hundred yards, and you have these vast floodplains where where it's a you know it's flooded and then unflooded every day with a you know essentially a massive salt sea. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, there are, there are a few places where the tide will come in faster than you can run. Hmm. Okay. There was uh, just one spot in uh, England that uh, today is all, you know, surrounded with dams and dikes, and it, this doesn't really happen anymore. But for hundreds of years, uh, it was just a giant swamp that would fill up and become a lake, and then it would drain out and become a swamp. And uh, that plays a huge role in British history, and that's all based on the tides. So um, how quickly the tides come in and out is based on the moon's orbit? Based on the moon's orbit uh, and the, the amount of gravity that it has. So if you had a world with a smaller moon. Mm -hmm. If you had a world with two moons. Uh-huh. Yeah. How uh, would, um, bigger like, moon, could you, closer Can moon. you imagine a tide that takes weeks to come in and go out instead? If the moon took weeks. If the Earth orbited, if the Earth orbited a gas giant, um, so that we were very close to something very large and then rotated a little more slowly so that the face of the planet, uh, the, the, pla the, the side of the planet that's facing whatever's pulling on us mm -hmm. is where high tide is. Yeah. Okay. And so the orbital period, or excuse me, the rotational period of the planet is essentially how you're determining the period of your tides. Okay. So yeah, you could, you could totally do that. You just have to figure out, you know, what the gravitational pull of that, uh, of that planet, of that, uh, you know, gravitational center is going to be. Okay. Um, let's, let me throw some other questions at you guys, um, our, our science dudes. Um, habitable zones. Um, yeah. Let's talk about those. Uh, basically, around a star, there's a, what's called the habitable zone. It's basically the liquid water zone. Okay. If the planet is too close to the star, then there won't be any liquid water because it's all turned to steam. If it's too far away from the star, it all turns to ice. Mm -hmm. So in between those two places, there are, there's an orbit, well, a bunch of orbits where the planet can have liquid water. Mm -hmm. And since liquid water is essential to life as we know it, that means that's where we could find planets that we could live on. Maybe okay. you call that the Goldilocks zone for okay. obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. if, if a planet had like incredibly strong gravity, exerting extra pressure on its water, would that change the size of that liquid water zone? Or am I misunderstanding well, my Yes, mechanics? but you're coming, you're coming at it the wrong way. Okay. If you look at, well, let's look at Jupiter, for instance. Jupiter's outside the Goldilocks zone, but Europa, orbiting Jupiter, uh, it's been speculated that Jupiter is exerting enough tidal influence on Europa that there might be liquid water under the ice of Europa and there might be enough geothermal activity on Europa as a result of, you know, tectonic pressure, gravitational pressure, okay. that there's heat and chemicals and whatever else, and we might have life so you happening can, there you under the ocean. So you can screw with this if you know what you're doing, is yeah. the yeah. answer right. to that What about uh, um, the orbits of planets? If you have an elliptical orbit, what does that do? And could you have one that goes in and out of a habitable zone? You could. Um, and so obviously then you'd have... Uh, big long winter if you went out of it mm -hmm. too Which I far. actually want to point out um, George R. R. Martin's 
series actually has good science if you pay any yes. attention to winter it. Winter is coming. Winter is coming because he's got a really wonky uh, uh, elliptical orbit. And this is one of my other things that I love. Uh, there's no moon. Mm. And yeah. so there are no tides, or there are much smaller Solar tides. tides. Solar tides. Different yeah. tides. One of the things I love about uh, Westeros as a planet is uh, that that incredibly long winter cycle that he has is the best explanation I've seen in a fantasy for why it has existed in this same kind of medieval technological level mm. for like thousands and thousands of years, because it keeps coming back and knocking them down again every time they try to do some serious technological well, progression. Well, it's not the first time it's been done either. Yes. Uh, I don't remember the name of the author, but the books were Heliconia Winter, Heliconia Spring, Heliconia... I think uh, The Summer Queen and the Winter Queen by Joan Vingy yes. also yeah. uh, cool. are dealing with this. Uh, but yeah, they, they both concepts. explore... Uh, I think in the Heliconia books, there were there were two stars and an orbit that... Uh, and, and yeah, a 400-year winter okay let's stop for a book of the week everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, and then I'll have another question for you guys. Um, Howard actually is going to give it to us. Yep. I just took a moment to uh, look this up and make sure it's available on Audible. Heliconia Spring, the Heliconia Trilogy, book one by Brian Aldiss, narrated by Christopher Slade. Um, I read this, gosh, 20 years ago, uh, 20 more than that years ago in college um, and really loved the concept, you know, the, the astronomy behind it mm -hmm. and how those long winters, really long winters, really long summers affected uh, uh, the the natural life, you know, the flora mm -hmm. and fauna and affected culture. It was really, okay. really fascinating. Um, I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know yeah. how memorable the characters are because I can't remember any of their names. But okay. hey, it's been 20 years. Where, where can they get it? Oh, head on out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can kick off a 14-day free trial membership and download a copy of Heliconia Spring by Brian Aldiss, narrated by Christopher Slade for free, or pick up any other uh, uh, audiobook that uh, suits your fancy. Okay. Um, next question for you then is what happens... Oh. Actually, before we do that, before we leave seasons... Yes. Um, one thing that we should talk about, because this is a common misconception, is um, what effect the orbit of the planet has mm -hmm. on the seasons. Okay, um, yes, good. Yeah. Eric. Oh. For, for Earth, actually, it has very little effect. What, what causes our seasons is the axial tilt of the Earth, not the distance from the sun. Uh, for, for us, actually, the, the northern hemisphere is farther away during the summer uh, farther away from the sun during the summer than during the winter, but it's because of the way the planet's tilted that our seasons are. So, what what does what does that do? Uh, basically, during the summer, uh, the, the we're tilted such that the sun's rays are coming sort of directly at the northern hemisphere. Yeah, they are uh, having to so travel through as angle. much atmosphere. It's the yeah, angle. angle creates creates our seasons. Yeah. Yes. There's a really great story by wow. Jerry Oltian. I can't remember the name of it, but it's in the Diamonds of in the Sky anthology, which uh, came out of the Launchpad initiative, and it is um, it specifically deals with seasons. It's and it's great because there's a king who wants to 
change how long summer is. Mm. And so he tries to move the planet, which has exactly the, <laughs> it's a great book. <laughs> so great. Um, no, if, if, the, if the tilt of the, the earth were, uh, you know, essentially point, straight up rather than about 23 yeah. degrees at an angle relative to our orbit around the sun, uh, we would have no seasons. Um, and huh. if we were tilted at 90 degrees, we'd have some very radical seasons. Interesting. See, that's, that's the sort of stuff I want to get in this podcast. That's yeah. great. What happens if we change our star? Binary stars, gas giants, whatever those other wacky little ones are. Um, what, what, what does that do to our habitable zone? What does it do to our planets? One thing to keep in mind is that the star that we currently go around, mm -hmm. uh, the best science indicates uh, that the star we go around is a nice, stable, long-lived one. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the other options are not particularly long-lived. Um, and and are not particularly stable. Their output uh, varies a lot over time. Um, you know, when we look at the age of the Earth and how long it took life to form, yeah. um, it might be a real challenge to get life to form around a blue giant, even if you were in the habitable zone. Okay. Um, because about the time life's evolving, um, it's exploding. Okay. One of the interesting things about it is that the bigger the star is, the faster it burns through its fuel, okay. and the shorter the life it has. Okay. Um, uh, bigger stars, the habitable zone would just be further away. Uh, yeah, the, it's because they're further hotter. away and won't last as long. Yeah. Okay. But which also means that your year is going to be significantly longer, okay. which is going to have an impact on your seasons as well because of the axial tilt. Okay. Another concept when we talk about habitable zones um, is, you know, on the, the mega astronomy side of things, uh, it's been postulated that there is a galactic habitable mm -hmm. zone. Uh, the closer you get to the galactic core, the more likely you are, because there, there are just more stars there, the more likely you are to be exposed to uh, gamma ray bursts mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, large stellar sorts of events. And those are the sorts of things which, if they're in the local neighborhood, would just kind of sterilize the planet. Um, and then further out, there have been fewer of these events, and so you're less likely to have useful things like carbon and iron and gold and mm -hmm. nitrogen all in the same place. They're a little more element poor out towards poor, the rim. Poor, poor life that doesn't evolve on a planet with gold. <laughs> so sad. Um, now, I, we, we asked about binary stars. I want to make sure to hear about that. Ever yeah. since we watched yeah. Star Wars as a kid, Tatooine has two suns. Is that possible? What does that do to it a planet? It not only is possible, uh, they just recently spotted a planet that was orbiting a binary star. Okay. Is it, will it still have a habitable zone? Does oh, Luke yeah. Skywalker live there? <laughs> what will it do? Anything? Um, well, it, it will probably give you some interesting temperature variations uh, as the, the sun, depending on how your orbit is, the yeah. suns would eclipse each other uh, and And you will like orbit that. not one of the suns or the other, but the point between them the, of the gravity or something like that? Like Well, it's possible, it, depending on how close the stars are to yeah. each other, yeah. your orbit might be different. You might okay. just orbit one of them and the other one is kind of like Jupiter out there and, okay. and orbiting around. Or you might be or orbiting both of them. Okay. I, as far as I know, no one has shown a way to have a figure eight orbit around both stars that is stable. Okay. Um, so that's one probably to steer that away from. That would be okay. awesome, though. But let me toss another book in there, which 
plays with multiple sons, and that's Nightfall. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Short story by Isaac Asimov. Also Pitch Black yes. with Vin Diesel, which we talked about before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was expanded into a novel, and the novel really gets into great detail. Okay. It, yeah. You know, I really want to do more of this. Um, I really want to have you back, Eric, uh, to do more science stuff. This has been a great podcast. Um, can you give us a writing prompt? Oh, before we do writing oh. prompts, uh, can you think of, let, let's throw people at some astronomy resources oh, online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites is the Astronomy Picture of the Day. Oh, okay. Yeah. They have an RSS feed. Mostly, it's a pretty picture. Devices. It's a pretty picture with a paragraph b- below it describing it, and it's full of links. Okay. And if you use that as your research jumping off point for astronomy for the day, you will fill your head uh, every day with fun astronomical things. I'm also okay. going to pitch Diamonds in the Sky, which is an anthology of short stories that are designed to teach astronomy literature. Uh, Literacy. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, that's a really great idea. Yeah. Um, and I, w- I want to mention the Bad Astronomy website, which oh, yeah. uh, is a great resource not only for clearing up some misconceptions, but also for learning about new developments in astronomy. Okay. And he's a funny writer. Yeah, he's a good yes. writer. All right. So, writing prompt? Writing prompt. Uh, write about a world that your uh, you know, space colonists are going to that has a different axial tilt from Earth and try and figure out how that affects the seasons for it. Okay. Thank you very much, Eric. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.